continuing our study in the pastoral epistles, and we're looking at 1 Timothy, and we're going to read through the whole thing again of chapter 2, and then focus on the second half. So let's, let's take, open our Bibles if you have them. If not, you can read along online, I mean on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So what is Paul doing here? Well, as we've talked about, he's, he's addressing this church that's having problems, and the the source of their problems are these false teachers who've come in, and we do not know all of the false teachings that are being presented, but what's happened is the false teachings are more than just curiosities, it's more than something that's just mentioned in a Bible study or something like that, but it has begun to affect how the church is, is interacting, how they're relating to one another. It's begun to, to cause division in the church. It's, it's, even if it might have started as a big or a small error, it doesn't matter that that error is growing. And so he's trying to tell Timothy, you know, let's, you know, this is what you need to do. You need to stay there. You need to fix this problem. And ultimately, as we've said, the problem is that they have, stepped away from the gospel. They've stepped away from the truth of God's word. And maybe they haven't felt like they're stepping totally away from it, but they're, they're, they've at least decided that they're going to step away from part of it. And we talked about how this is often called, um, in, you know, regardless of what the source is, this is a form of what's called syncretism, of trying to make Christianity kind of customize it so it fits already into my life. And Paul's solution is we need to focus on the gospel. We need to focus on the truth. We need to remind them of what the truth is and how important it is for us to live the truth, that the truth of the gospel shows up in our lives. So, 
when we get to chapter two and he starts to give the instruction, he says, first of all, he does something that we're not like totally expecting. We, we, we would have expected if he would have said, okay, the first truth you need to teach is, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I want to correct these behaviors that are associated with specific people in the church that are connected to these false teachings. And as we looked at last week, what we, what we saw was there was a problem with when they were gathering to pray, there were problems with how they were praying. And one of the problems was at the beginning where it was the problem of they were, they were being selective in their prayers. They were being limiting in their prayers. They weren't praying for everyone. They were only praying for like a specific group. And we're not, again, 100% sure of what the false teaching was behind that that would lead them to do this. But Paul wants to correct it. And he specifically mentions kings and others in high positions. He talks about civic authorities because now he gets to the real problem. The real problem is, is that is that somehow this church had forgotten that the gospel is for all people. That if the gospel is to be proclaimed, if God's kingdom is going to be advanced, that, that we need to be praying for all people and we need to be praying that our leaders make wise decisions that allows us to have an environment in which we can best advance the gospel and grow in the spirit. If you look at the text, he spends most of the time on that particular, you know, that, that particular uh, topic about the gospel. But then he points to the second problem in verse 8. And again, it's not, we don't know what's behind it. We know that there's false teachings. We know that's causing divisions. But he's saying, like, when you get together and pray... He's talking specifically to the men. And he says, men, when you do this, you need to lift holy hands and you need to do so without quarreling, without anger. They had lost this, you know, the whole purpose of praying. They had lost the spirit of praying. It had become just kind of a, a thing you do. And especially when, when you're doing a corporate prayer and if, he's, if he was talking specifically to the leaders or the people who would lead in prayer, he's really you know, saying, you don't, you've really lost the whole thing you're doing. When you pray, it's not you praying to God in front of people. He says, when you're praying in this group, you are lifting up a prayer on behalf of the people. In some ways, your prayer should be representative of what's going on in this church. And he's telling them, you guys are messing this up. You're fighting one second and the next second saying these really holy prayers. He's telling them they're not not holy. And so he's trying to provide these solutions. 
But he's doing this by talking specifically about problems that certain people are having. In this case, it was the men. Perhaps you can narrow it down to even the men who were leading in prayer, but, but that's not what, what he says. He says, the men. Now, I want you to keep this in mind as we go into this second section today. He says, men pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. He's not saying women don't pray. He's not saying women, you can fight as much as you want. You can hate everybody in the church and you can pray, it's cool. It's only the men who need to be holy. He is not saying that. The reason he's pointing out the men, partly is probably because they would have been more prominent, more public in what they were doing but because they were the ones having the problems. In other words, just when we talked last week, when we were teaching last week, when it said to pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, we didn't say, hey, only the men in the church need to do this. No, every believer, every believer in Christ, we should pray, we should pray from pure hearts. We were talking about this last night in our, in our growth group at the house. And, you know, one of the things that I really encourage you to do if you don't do this already is before you come to this time of worship or before you come to any time where we have corporate gatherings, that you prepare your heart. And part of preparing your heart is taking time to, to pray to God and think through, you know, the, the things you know you did that day or you thought or didn't do that you know or sin and to confess and ask God to forgive you and in fact to go a step further and to say you know as the psalmist says God I want you to search my heart search my heart reveal to me the things that I'm missing I can't see that if we're going to take seriously this lifting of holy hands, praying from pure hearts, then this is what we need to do. But we're going to move into this second section this, this morning, and, and it's a second session, sec, section that, you know, in the past 40, 50 years has become increasingly controversial in so many churches. And I'm not saying it wasn't a problem before. It, it could have been but it has become more so in the last 40, 50, 60 years. And because it, it, Paul is addressing now specifically women. He had been specifically addressing men, but he's specifically addressing women. And I want you to keep this in mind. Except when he, when he puts men and women in the same sentence, everything he says about the women he is in some ways saying about men too. And we'll talk about that more. But that's part of the debate and the discussion that's left out when people study this passage. And one of the reasons this passage has become so controversial is because we sometimes suffer from the same problems that this first century church suffered from. And that is we, we lose the importance of the gospel and we stop 
really valuing what God values. And we become more concerned, and I'm talking about Christians, not non-Christians, but Christians, we become more concerned with our own desires, with our own rights, than the gospel. One of the kind of foundational things we believe, you know, about Christianity, and I'm not saying every Christian believes this, um, I think they should, I think it's what the Bible teaches, but what we believe is that we, as human beings, were the ones who rejected God, that God made everything good, he made us very good, he gave us every opportunity, we rejected him. What we deserved from him was judgment. What we got from him was grace and salvation. If we truly understand grace, if we truly understand grace, what we understand is that we deserve nothing from God. Grace if we acknowledge we didn't deserve anything before, God then gives us grace, makes us new. Why suddenly do we start having an attitude that God owes us? Or that our rights are more important than his will? I don't know. It happens to all of us. It happens even to me. The problem is, is that when we, when we start to think about our own desires, our own rights, that's when we become vulnerable to syncretism. That's when we want to go, okay, I really like 95% of Christianity, but there's that 5%, you know, just got to hold on to. Kind of the, the dopey version of this, which you might have said, I know I've said it, it's just hopefully in fun, but people will say like, you know, will there be golf in heaven? You know, I don't know if I want to spend eternity without golfing, right? I mean, other people will say something else, you know, what will there be in heaven? And if it's not there, oh, and they're usually hopefully joking. But it's, it's that mindset of, of thinking like, oh, I gotta, I gotta have a faith that somehow includes golf. I gotta have a faith, you know, that somehow includes all the things that I really want to hold on to and like and do, rather than let Jesus Christ come into my life and transform me, make everything new. I want to say, Jesus, make everything new except for this old stuff that I kind of want to hold on to. What we don't realize sometimes is that a lot of the things that once, the things that would cripple us and enslave us, that when we become new in Christ, they're still there, but they no longer control us. Jesus doesn't necessarily take them away. Some of the things, yes, they need to be taken away. They're, they're harmful. They're sinful. They feed our selfishness and our pride but some of the things are perfectly okay the problem is our attitude towards them 
how we can too easily make things that we like or find valuable or helpful, we can too easily make them idols. Here's the other problem. When we become so concerned with our desires or our rights, it makes us susceptible to false teachers. Because a false teacher, if a false teacher is really good, a false teacher will, you know, be like a, like if you ever played baseball, like a really good pitcher can, can throw a pitch that looks like a strike all the way into the last second and then it becomes, it goes out of the strike zone. That's what a really good pitcher does. Because the batter is going to go, it's going to be a strike, it's going to be a strike, I'm going to swing, and then boom, it's gone. It's not where it's supposed to be. Really good false teacher can make something sound true, sound biblical, bring you all along, and just leave out that one thing. It looks so attractive, it looks so good. If you've been in the church for the last 50, 60 years, you know one of the most insidious false teachings that has come into the church and become so popular among, among Christians is what's sometimes called the word-faith movement. This, this belief that if you just have enough faith and you say, I have enough faith, that if I claim it, God will provide it. He has to. They don't say it that way. They say it other ways. But ultimately, it is that. If I have enough faith, if I say the right words, if I just believe, God has to do whatever I believe. So many people have, because that's a gospel that kind of fits our desires, I get some say. I'm not surrendering to God completely. I'm surrendering, and then he's handed me back the reins. It becomes attractive. Well, Paul is trying to get Timothy to get this church to focus back on the gospel and what the gospel is, what Jesus Christ came to do, and to me, the value of this letter and that still screams at us today is the same thing because the church is always under threat of syncretism. And the first thing we, we saw, and we saw it in verse 8 with the prayers, and verse 9 when he's talking to women about how they dress. And what's underlying both of these things is this, who we are in Christ should be reflected in all we do. If you notice, when he's talking about dress, he talks about some specific things that are from their day. Most of you, you know, I haven't, you know, I haven't seen, uh, you know, women braiding their hair and interweaving in the hair gold and, you know, pearls and things like that. But that was something that was done in this day. And even the braiding of the hair was something that wouldn't have been done in like five minutes. You know, I, 
I used to braid my daughter's hair before they knew better um, and wanted somebody good. But I used to do it, and it didn't take more than five minutes. This might take an hour, two hours. This was something that was extravagant. He's pointing something out specifically to that time. He's not saying don't come to church in the 21st century with braided hair. But if you look at what he says in verse 10, what is the principle? The principle is dress in a way consistent with the godliness you profess. I find this very interesting because the criticism of the men is worse than the criticism of the women. The criticism of the men is you guys are angrily, you're angry, you're quarreling, you're causing problems, you're causing division. Stop it so that you can pray with holy hands. With the women, he's saying, you guys are godly. You're godly. Dress that way. He's, he's acknowledging who they are in Christ as opposed to the men just pointing out their problems, their issues. But somehow this, this hadn't been connected. And I need to stop. I need to make sure we understand. Paul is not saying, women, you need to dress modestly. Men, dress however you want. He's not saying, women, you dress in a way that's consistent with your godliness. Men, you can dress like Satan if you want. Doesn't matter. No. He just happens to be pointing this out because they're the ones who are having the issue. They're the ones that were struggling in this area. And I'm going to tell you, it wasn't all women. It wasn't all women at this church. But there was some women, and some people believe that you know, from what we read later on in, in Timothy, that he could have really been directing this at some of the, the young widows in the church. But he's saying, like, when you, everything you do, from how you pray to how you dress, should reflect who we are in Christ. And that means that it can be, you know, for some people, kind of tedious. Because we sometimes have to ask the questions, and he's talking about prayer, and he's talking about dress, but he could have been talking about a lot of other things. But we would have to ask the question, why am I doing this? What effect is this having on the people around me, intended or not? When he's talking about dress, he's like, he's, he's pointing out certain things. And there's, you know, some dis discrepancy, some dispute over exactly what he's talking about in, with, when he talks about modesty and self-control. But the examples that he cites, he is saying this, that some of the women in the church were dressing in such a way to show how much better they were than other people. 
it was a way to show kind of the distinction in, in, in their kind of socioeconomic class, their position. And, and Paul is, you know, again, Paul doesn't give us all the background. He assumes Timothy knows the background. He assumes that Timothy immediately thinks about the letter to the church at Ephesus, the letter to the church at Galatians, the letter to 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth. He, he knows, Timothy knows all, not only these letters, but having sat and learned from Paul. And what's echoing in his mind is this fundamental principle that in Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave nor free. There is no male or female. And if you are either carelessly, which is a problem, but it's not as bad of a problem as intentionally doing things to draw attention to my class distinction, I am a master, you're a slave, it's a problem. That was the specific problem he's, he's addressing is, is that we should adorn ourselves in respectable apparel. I saw this kind of play out in not necessarily the most positive way when I went to a, a like, this was, man, this was a long time ago. It was over 30 years ago and I went to a Micronesian island. And the island was considered Christian even though having spent the couple weeks I was there pretty thoroughly convinced it wasn't Christian. But on, on this island, this Micronesian island, if a woman, even a tourist, wore shorts, it was considered a scandal. Because in their culture, like the women, and you would see the, the, the local women, they would be playing volleyball and they would, be having, they would have dresses on playing volleyball. They would go out to the tide pools wearing dresses. It was a cultural thing. It's very different. If I was going to go there and minister there, I would have to take that into account. I can't, couldn't go in there and just say, well, I'm an American. And I'm going to minister to you, and you just have to accept that this is how I am. It's different. But when we do these things, do we, do we do these things as an expression of who we are in Christ? And do we do these things out of concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ? And then Paul brings in this last thought and you wish he would unpack it more, but he doesn't. In verse 10, and he's, he's talking about what we adorn ourselves with and adorn is more than dress as he's already talked about. But then he says, you know what you should adorn yourself with? And again, he's talking specifically to the women, but he's really talking to all of us, all believers. Adorn yourself with good works. Adorn yourself with good works. And of course, if you trace back Paul's little 
understanding of good works. And you go to like Ephesians chapter 2 when it talks about we are his workmanship prepared to do the good works that he prepared for us before the foundation of the world. And he's not saying do good works so you can brag about it. Do good works so you can, you, can, you can show everybody else that you're a better Christian than they are. No, he, he's saying these good works come from this right, clean, pure heart. They come from God. That's what we should be known for. Similarly, in verse 11, he's directing this to women in the church. And again, it's not to all women. It's just to some women who are having this problem. It wasn't a universal problem. Paul's not stereotyping. But there were women in the church that were struggling with this. And again, we don't know why. We just get this one verse. We don't know why they were struggling with it. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend I know why I don't. I just know what Paul says. And what Paul says is, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. But again, I need to remind you, he's telling this to the women because the women were having the problem with it. Is, is Paul then saying, men, you can learn and you can be rebellious, you can be full of pride, you can be angry, you can, you can get up and tell that pastor why he's wrong. Is he saying that? Of course not. For whatever reason, Paul doesn't feel he needs to address the men. They were struggling with something else. Some of the women in the church were struggling with this. And so it's not just women who should have this proper attitude when they learn. It's all of us. Christians, we need to be marked by a teachable attitude. And if we're really understanding what Paul's saying, he's talking about within the, the gathering of the, of the church. We need to have a teachable attitude toward the leaders in the church. Toward, toward those, the, the pastors, or what some churches will even call the elders. The ones who have been, been kind of given the responsibility of equipping the saints. We need to have a teachable attitude toward them. Again, I don't know why some of the women in the church at Ephesus were struggling with this. We know some of the reason is, is because whatever those false teachings were, whatever those false teachings were, they were influencing them. And getting to the point where, where they no longer had to kind of really listen. They didn't need to respect the teaching, those in, in authority. Maybe... <clears throat> Maybe the men were just more used to it because they had been in that environment longer. And, and this, in, especially in Jewish settings, but certainly for the Gentiles, it would have been a completely new experience. But in you know, a more Jewish setting, women and men worshiping together, learning together, is a new thing. 
In certain parts of this, of this um, society, women being invited to any kind of formal instruction would have been a huge deal. And maybe they just didn't understand. But I can't envision Paul saying, women, you need to be respectful. You need to be quiet and learning. But men, you can be loud and boisterous and do whatever you want. No. It's for all of us. And for me, it's one of those really important things that I think sometimes churches you know, kind of lose sight of. There are churches where, where I went to seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. There's just Southern Baptist churches alone. Within like a 10-mile radius, there's probably 200 churches. And they come in all shapes and sizes. But some of those churches, and these people were very proud of it, they would say this. They would say like, we always want to take that young pastor, the new pastor who's maybe even in his first year at the seminary, because we want to shape him. We want to teach him how to be a pastor. This church got it all upside down. Why are you asking someone to come in and equip the saints, teach the word, but you're saying up front, we're looking for someone who doesn't know how to do it, and then we're going to tell them how to do it. It's crazy. It's crazy. I think a lot of times when churches look for pastors, I think they, they look for the wrong things. You know, they, they, they get, you know, they get caught up because they often start in the wrong place. If I ever give advice, and I have given advice to churches looking for pastors, my first question to them is, do you know what kind of church God wants you to be? Have you looked in God's word and you know what what God's will is for his church. That's where you begin. And where you're falling short, you need to find a pastor who will not allow you to continue to fall short in those areas. And that's hard. That's a church doing this self-reflection and looking at its weaknesses and saying, we need someone to fix our weaknesses we need someone to come in and teach us. But when they start there, they start with the teachable attitude. All of us, we need to have a teachable attitude. And especially towards those who are leaders in the church. Even when, you know, I am looking and when we're considering different candidates for positions in the church. I hope I never have to choose between these two things, but if I do, I know which one I have, I'll choose. If I have to choose between teachability and talent, I will choose teachability every day. I don't want the talented person who th thinks they know it all and doesn't have a spirit of wanting to grow and learn. 
I would rather work with the person who has no talent, which will drive me crazy in a different way, but is teachable, right? Because I think that's more reflective of the most important thing of what we see in Christ of humility. This places, when a church has this attitude, and I think our church has a, is really like very healthy in this area. I'm not saying we all have this perfectly, but I think, I think we're very healthy compared to a lot of other churches. But when this happens, that puts a huge burden, a huge onus, responsibility on John and me. Because if we have people who are being teachable, we need to be sure we are teaching you the truth. And not getting sidetracked with our own opinions. Sidetracked in our own interests. And this is again consistent with the action reflects what's in our hearts. Teachability comes from a humble spirit, a humble heart. Humility is a fruit of the spirit. Teachability doesn't mean I just accept everything to be true that comes out of, you know, the pastor's mouth. But it does mean I am, I am wanting to engage with this, to understand it. To at least say, if it's different from what I believe, I need to at least be engaging with this of saying I could be wrong. And we see, you know, three things. How we pray, how we dress, how we learn. Paul says, how do you pray? Pray with holy hands. Pray with a holy heart. How do you dress? Dress yourself with good works. That comes from the godliness that's in you. How do we learn? With a submissive spirit. A teachable heart. And then the last part, you know, up until then, most people were like, okay, I can kind of track with that. But then, you know, Paul, I think you crossed the line in verse 12 when you say, I don't, do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. You know, rather she is to remain quiet. In this verse, it's clearly not to the whole, to the whole church. He's talking specifically to women. And kind of the overarching principle that applies in both directions to men and women, is that as believers in Christ, we need to accept our scriptural roles. And Paul, in this situation, is talking about how some women in that church had fallen short of this. But let me tell you, if he were to write a letter to the modern church that I know, and I'm not saying specifically our church, although this may feel like I'm throwing a stone and hitting you in the head. But he would also say, men, you have been given a role. Husbands, you've been given a role. Are you fulfilling that role? You cannot just say, women, wives, you must fulfill the role. We all need to accept the scriptural roles. And it's hard to do. Men, you're not called to be the, the spiritual tyrant of your house, 
but you're called to be the spiritual leader of your house. Men and women, husbands and wives, you are called to be the frontline, first level discipler of your children. Are we accepting the scriptural roles that we've been given? And I'm not going to pretend that I know all the background for verse 12. I know I've read a lot. I've read a lot of positions. I've read a lot of people thinking this theory and thinking this, and this is what Paul's talking about. Virtually every single word of verse 12, and by the way, 13 and 14, every single word, virtually every single word, there's like a divergence of opinions about what Paul means by that particular word. It's crazy. But one, what we need to understand, whether we fully understand why, what we need to understand is this. There are distinctions between men and women. God made us that way. In fact, he mentions one of them in verse 15, the childbearing one. He is more specifically here, if we're keeping this in context, talking about when the church is gathered. It's not like a general blanket rule. We actually have examples from the New Testament of women teaching men. We, we, the most prominent is Priscilla. Priscilla is helping to teach Apollos. But she's not doing it from a position of authority in the church. She's doing it as a Christian sister. It's not a general blanket rule. It doesn't say women have nothing to teach men, but it's talking about when we gather from a position of authority. Again, I don't, I'm not going to tell you I know all the reasons why. I do know this. I know that it has nothing to do with inferiority. It has nothing to do with human beings being superior. I mean, human beings, I mean, males being superior. It has nothing to do with that. Because there's so much that could be talked about, and, and I don't want to get lost in that, I want to get, I want to focus on this one, this one thing that we just should think about, especially if you struggle in this area. And there are, you know, sincere Christians who struggle with this. What is Paul asking? He's asking, he's asking the woman in the church gatherings to be a symbol of humility. As long as we do not value what God values, we will always see that as inferiority. And yet Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, have the mind of Christ. And when he says, have the mind of Christ in, in chapter 2, what is he talking about? He's talking about that Jesus would humble himself. That Jesus, before Jesus is Jesus, when he's the Son of God, he humbles himself. Humility is not a human trait inferior to some, some powerful, prideful, selfish God. Humility is in the very heart of God. And until we understand that humility 
is far more valuable to God because it is who he is than authority, pride, all these other things that we value. Until we get it, we'll always struggle with this. As long as we don't really take Jesus' word seriously when he says, if you want to be first, you need to be last. If you, you, you have to be willing to be servant of all. If you go through scripture, and I actually did this as part of, as part of my PhD dissertation, as I went through scripture and I looked for words like obedience and humility and submissiveness, and I studied the context of every one of those, and there's, there's hundreds of them. In the overwhelming majority, and I'm talking probably on one hand, maybe on one finger, I could count the, the other side. The overwhelming majority, majority of the time the Bible speaks about these things, it speaks about them as though they're good. That obedience is good. That humility is good. That being teachable is good. And when it talks about pride and getting your way, it's always talked about in the negative. And the struggle we constantly have when we approach topics like this, the struggle we have is that we don't value what God values. We still see things from the way the world sees things, which is based on power. And whenever things are based on power, there's always winners and losers. If someone is always the loser, if everything is based on power, then, then that means that that loser is inferior. But if we value what God values, if we have truly been made new, where we are no longer operating according to who is the most powerful, but we are operating out of love for God and love for one another that he gives to us through Jesus Christ, it changes everything. We read these scriptures in a totally different way. In fact, in a way, he's telling the women, and, as, and again, it's, it's probably a subgroup of women in the church, he's saying, be like Christ. What's wrong with that? The last point is Paul doing what Paul does in this text. He returns to the gospel. And the church must focus on the gospel. He returns to the truth. He goes and he quotes scripture. And I don't have time to unpack all of this. We're actually going to do this. I told everybody on Wednesday we were going to do it um, this coming Wednesday. But I forgot John's preaching next week. So we'll do it the following Wednesday. And we'll really unpack these scriptures more. But let me just go through it real quickly here. Paul returns to the gospel. He goes and he, he quotes from the Old Testament. And he's reminding people of, the, of creation. He's reminding them of the fall. He's reminding them of judgment. He's focusing on the women, so he's focusing on what Eve did. He doesn't focus on what Adam did. He says Eve was deceived. Adam was actually in some ways worse. Eve was deceived. She got tricked. Adam willfully sinned. He knew it was wrong. He did it anyways. He didn't get tricked. 
Paul then is referencing the curse or part of the curse. It's really not a curse. It's more like the judgment God places on people. And one of the judgments that he gives to, to women is he, and this was mistranslated for so long, it's been recently better translated, where he says, within the household, the wife's desire, the wife's desire will be to overpower her husband. When God first created Adam and Eve, the idea was that they, that, that, that Eve would be like his helper. But after the sin, after the fall, the desire was that, that the wife would overpower the husband. Paul's connecting all this to the gospel, and he's saying, if we go back to all of these problems that happened, this reverses that. When, we are, when we're saved, when we're made new, the curse is reversed. I no longer see myself, if I'm, if I'm a wife or a, a woman in Christ, as now my desire is to dominate that guy. He gives us this reference at the end of that again connects this to the gospel because he talks about how salvation, and again, I don't have time to unpack it, but how this salvation, and there's, there's all these really strange things Paul do, is doing here where he talks, he's talking about Eve, and then he's also in some ways talking about Mary, and then he talks about the women of that time. But to the women in that time, he is giving this consistent message. He's saying, you need to continue in faith and love and holiness. You, if you fall for these false teachers, if you follow their teachings, it is going to take you away from these things. That you're going to no longer continue in faith and love and holiness. He gives this reminder of the gospel in a, in a Paul way. And then he says what we are really called to do is to display the new life in Christ. And that is done in many ways in showing the humility and the servant-heartedness of Christ. In the household of faith, it is not inferior to be a servant. Our Lord is the greatest servant of all.